What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Writing Friction. And as always, today's guest is pretty cool. Everyone say hello to John Seabrook. How are you, John? Hi. Good. How are you, Michael? Uh, Not too bad. The most fascinating thing about the podcast so far when we start via Zoom is seeing the backgrounds of people. Um, we were talking before. <laughs> I, was gonna, I just wanted to make sure it wasn't some nuclear ground under, you know, bunker. It looks like I'm in a bunker. Yeah. Like for like the next 30 years. Right. Yeah. And well, we also learned that we're both guitar players. You're, you're a Fender guy. I'm a Gibson guy. Yeah. Well, I got a Gibson too, but yeah. Okay. What yeah, kind I of Gibson? Wait, what kind of Gibson? A 335. Oh, you have a 335. Yeah. Okay. So people who can see, I have a 339 behind, uh, behind yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. Um, signed by Keith Richards. That's what it's all about. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get to that because John wrote a book that I'm a huge fan of, and we'll get to it at some point. Um, for people who can see, it's called The Song Machine. Um, I heard about it originally when Bob Lefsetz wrote about it. He wrote a letter about it originally, right. um, and he was actually just on the podcast. Um, and we talked, really? brief- yeah, yeah, we just talked briefly about it. But I want to start kind of from the beginning. We were both talking earlier. I always warn people beforehand um when there's two people from new jersey on the podcast uh so you were born in south jersey right right south jersey mm-hmm. wait deep, deep south jersey they call it down there yeah kind of near like atlantic city delaware area right yeah like right across the state from atlantic city if you went to the delaware side rather than the atlantic side yeah salem county right there yeah. you ever watch boardwalk empire oh yeah what do you think about that loved it <laughs> yeah loved it yeah, I mean, I love that whole era. I mean, it's it's so great. And my grandfather was kind of involved in some of that stuff too, so I was super interested in that. Okay, yeah. Now, growing up in North Jersey, the mafia and all that stuff was always around. Um, okay. so to kind of get forward and let people know, um, you've been a staff writer, right, for the New Yorker for quite some time. Um, yep. how did we get to that point in your life? Where were you going to school? Were you writing a lot as a kid? Reading a lot? Um, you write predominantly all nonfiction, so. Right. You know, what led you in that direction? Well, nonfiction, you know, people think, oh, fiction, nonfiction, should I go this way or that way? But in fact, uh, I don't even think you have a choice. In a way, it's sort of chosen for you by your makeup, your mind, and and what you're inspired by. So for me, uh, I was never one for kind of making up stories, you know, sort of imaginary stories. In fact, I'm sort of terrible at it. Uh, But I'm super interested in the world around me and learning about it and then sharing that knowledge with other people. Um, So I think that's kind of where I'm sort of basically coming from. Um, uh, And then, but it took me a while to realize that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, You know, I, I had interest in science. A lot of the stuff that I write about uh, sort of technology and science and music were sort of possible careers that I maybe considered at some point, uh, but uh, I, maybe my process is elimination. <laughs> None of those worked out, but uh, I did accumulate <laughs> a lot of knowledge about yeah. that stuff, and and writing was the way I sort of uh, my talent was able to sort of manifest itself. So when you were talking about these specific things, technology and all stuff like that, when was, were you studying it in college or were you studying journalism? I mean, what? Yeah. Yeah. So there, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there's mechanics of it that you need. Yeah. To yeah. Learn. Yeah. I know a lot of people kind of want to know like how you get into this stuff and, and there's various routes. I mean, journalism school is a good route if you're heading more for a newspaper type 
writing. Uh, and But even there, it's really more about meeting people who can help you than the techniques that you learn, which like can really be learned on the job. So I, I never went to journalism school and I learned about journalism just by doing it. Uh, I don't really think it's so complex. It's not like a professional, like lawyering, lawyering or, or doctoring where you need years of professional training. Most of it is kind of common sense uh, and, and, you know, uh, uh, inquisitiveness, curiosity. Uh, I think a talent uh, a lot of people who seem to do well have in journalism is, you know, being able to make friends quickly, uh, putting people at ease, feeling comfortable in a lot of different sort of somewhat strange situations. But anyway, so so for me, uh, there was no sort of prof, uh, sort of professional school that guided me there. I, I went to I went to a good school. I went to Princeton, did a lot of writing there, both fiction and nonfiction. Had a lot of good teachers. Uh, got to meet real writers, which is I think a huge uh, uh, thing for a young writer to do to see that yeah, this is a real career, and there are people you respect to actually do it because there's not really a, a, a one set career path. So you're like, you're asking me how I got there and my career path might be very different from another. Anyway, so w when I got out of college, I, uh, I wasn't sure what to do. Uh, I didn't really think about magazines as this kind of unique genre of, of journalism, but a friend of mine who worked at a magazine suggested that I try to write a few book reviews for the back of the book, uh, which I did. And then they said, well, how about, you know, trying a feature for the front end? And so I tried that and it, it turned out that magazine writing was sort of perfect for my particular sort of interests and talents because I was, you know, I, I had a literary interest in developing characters and storylines and, and narrative and, you know, sort of creating a story that had a beginning, middle, and end and, and felt like a, a structural sort of, uh, you know, like a, a thing that had been structured purposely. Uh, and magazine writing allows you to, you know, at least at that point, this was in sort of the heyday, I guess, of magazines. Could, and you, could you give us a year? I mean, could you give us a decade? Mid-80s, mid-80s okay. when yeah. I started writing yeah. for magazines. So, Magazines were everywhere at that point, oh, yeah. and the uh, business model was strong. Advertising. Uh, 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 I'm picturing you know the New York. You know, I used to work in Lower Manhattan a long time ago, and I you know I'm just picturing all the coffee sellers and the I mean, people just slinging those yeah. magazines. Yeah, there are all those great newsstands everywhere. People were in them. There, you know, you go in and you see like thousands of titles yeah. of magazines surrounded. People surrounded. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was it was really a, a wonderful time. It's really changed uh, because of the internet mainly, uh, and now you know there's other there's other venues for writers, but maybe not as well paid and as prominent as magazines were. Anyway, so so I started writing for magazines, and once I got into that, uh, you know, other editors sort of saw my stuff and said, "Oh, we would like to write for us, maybe." You know, and and so I got opportunities to freelance, and then uh, hooked up with Vanity Fair in the later '80s. That was when Van Tina Brown was the editor. Vanity Fair was uh, a, a kind of a big deal in the culture. It was. Can I stop you right there. Yep. I want to go back. You said something interesting at the beginning of this. Um, you yeah. said part of being the journalist, it's not necessarily going to school, but it's being able to adapt to your surroundings, being able to, you know, be around and taken in and work with what you got. Um, right. 
you know, you're talking, it sounds like you're kind of, you know, I would call it schmoozing people. Um, yeah, schmoozing. yeah, you yeah. got to schmooze around. So I just Absolutely. finished a, a I just lot of different kinds of people you got to schmooze it, to. And that's what it is. Yeah. And so I just want to real quick, I just finished a great book um, called Why Sinatra Matters about Frank Sinatra. And yeah. Pete Hamill. And yeah. he writes about in the begin in the very beginning of that book, a scene where he's hanging out with Frank Sinatra in the back of some bar. And he's just talking about, he's like, this is my job. He's like, people are going to come in and out. I have to be able to adapt to everyone who's around me. And he's like, you have to just learn pretty much on the fly. So it kind of yeah. sounds like that's what you were doing in that time. Absolutely. Uh, it really is about like, and particularly like in a city or you're in an urban environment like yeah. Pete Hamill and, you know, you got a lot of different characters. You got a lot of different sort of people that are maybe going to try to put one over on you. You have to know what's true and what's not true. You develop kind of a bullshit detector. Oh, yeah. A lot of people are going to be, you know, sort of bullshitting you. Yeah. Uh, particularly depending on your field, but like in music or like where people are kind of hyping themselves, you got to kind of be able to uh, filter a lot of that stuff out. Yeah. But you also have to have a good ear. I think another huge talent that I kind of just realized I had uh, was like of, of, a, of five paragraphs of dialogue, there's one line in there that sort of sticks in my mind. And because it sticks in my mind, I can trust that it's going to be the line I want to quote, that that's the right line. Uh, and and it's really just something you can't say, well, why is it that line? It's just that you hear it and you remember it and you have to be able to trust your instincts and say, yeah, that's those are the good quotes because you're going to have you you have you, a lot of what you're doing as a journalist is kind of filtering through like endless amount particularly if you if you record everything which with phones now it's so easy to record and these are everything. you know sometimes you're working on a piece for months if not a year right and you're going to have a lot of stuff and and so you need a really good like um editing filter in your head to be able to cut through a lot of that stuff and not get lost it also yeah. helps have a, a good editor like another person yeah you can bounce stuff up up too that's so that's so you're schmoozing so, yeah so to bring it back to what before i cut you off so you're schmoozing around in the 80s you bring it up to vanity fair are you in new york city at this time yeah, yeah i was living in the city i came to the city after i graduated it was you know new york's still pretty much the center of publishing although <laughs> yeah tell me about it maybe kind of regional clout that it had yeah. before no cities i think do the way they did back then but the idea of like a creative hub, New York was a was a creative hub of publishing, both magazines and and book publishing, and so I, I came here. It was really essential, really, to be here. Uh, less so now, but it was then. So yeah, yeah I was living here. Uh, it was a lot cheaper to live here then, but I actually <laughs> lived in Williamsburg back in the eighties when it was really fairly rough. Oh yeah, uh, and. Uh, my parents and, are from yeah, the Bronx. So I was born Fair. in Queens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Vanity Fair was a huge gig because the the money was there was Tina Brown paid more money than other people paid, so you could really like make a living and spend some doing it. So it was really <laughs> great. Uh, but ultimately, I guess my artistic or sort of literary ambitions were greater than Vanity Fair, and I wanted to work at the New Yorker. So after I had been at Vanity Fair for a couple of years, I started sort of standing ideas in the New Yorker. And uh, that was like in the very late end of the 80s and uh, and eventually got an assignment to write a long piece for them. And then after a couple more years- What was Tina that Brown first actually, piece about? It was about gold mining in Nevada. Uh, okay. It was a gold, it was a, sort of a technology that allowed 
called heap leaching and allowed people to get gold out of uh, ore that had previously been considered waste. And, uh, and it created this giant gold rush in, in uh, the town of Battle Mountain, Nevada. Uh, so I spent a lot of time there and talked to all these characters and put it together into a long piece. And I've driven was, through that town on tour. I know it's not really Mm-hmm. You don't remember. You don't forget that name, Battle Mountain. Battle uh, Mountain. Yeah, yeah. that's so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like right. It's in the middle of nowhere, really. Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, but it was like a boomtown, so it was a cool place to hang out. That's um, cool. Anyway, so yeah, then I then Tina Brown sort of moved from Vanity Fair to the New Yorker in the 92, 92, I guess, and then I sort of followed her as a staff writer and became a staff writer with the New Yorker. Um, and, you know, so I've basically been writing for them ever since, since the mid nineties. So, I mean, you know, it seems like nowadays, you know, the New Yorker is still, you know, the penultimate. It's what people are always, it's just what, it's who you submit your short stories to all things like that. Um, you said early nineties is when you got there, right? Mid, yeah. Mid nineties. And it was at that time that you wrote a pretty important piece that would then go on eventually to become something else. Could we talk a little bit about that piece that you wrote, right? It was called. Yeah, that was my second piece. I wrote a piece called flash of genius. Um, you know, again, about, uh, it sort of grew out of technology, but in this case it was about like who owns an idea. Uh, this guy who had had an idea for, uh, uh, this is, you know, his idea occurred to him back in the early sixties. In those days, cars didn't have intermittent windshield wipers. They only had like, slow and fast and if he had an eye injury and and couldn't see at either of the two settings and thought that you know there should be some intermediate setting so anyway he had this idea for intermittent widget wiper took it to ford ford said no thank you we don't really think this is a good idea and then they went ahead and you know made it themselves uh, which happens all the time and uh put it on one of their cars in the mid-60s so he so this guy his name was robert kearns uh, launched a long uh, patent uh, case, became one of the longest cases, you know, in the you know history patent, uh, which has some long cases, uh, trying to get you know his rights uh, uh, from Ford, and uh, eventually he won. Uh, and I kind of came into it toward the end of the case, and then uh, got to know his family and spent time in Detroit, and um, and. Um, was there when the verdict was announced. And it was sort of a bittersweet story because although he won, it, it, like 30 years of his life was yeah. taken up with this thing. And his Yeah, wife people should read him. about it. It's, it's pretty intense. Um, I have two questions. You know, as someone who doesn't work in this field, I, I really don't know. First question is, how did you find this guy? How did this story come to you? And second, when it eventually was made into a movie, did you have any part of that process? Were you happy with that process? You know, can you talk about both of those things? Uh, I, I think I just read about the patent case in the Wall Street Journal uh, one day. And, you know, it was just a short sort of piece about the ongoing case and, and then thought that this would make a much more interesting, longer story if you were able to sort of go back and sort of tell the whole story. So it really just came from seeing a clip and then, and then getting him to, he was sort of leery of uh, uh, reporters at that point. And I had to go down to Houston where he was living then and spend a weekend sort of trying to persuade him yeah. to talk to me. And there's a certain amount of that that goes on in journalism too. You you, you, you got to learn how to do sort of that. have to trust you. 
Right. And you have to sort of be honest, too, and say, look, you know, if you trust me, it's not going to end up badly for you. You know, you can't, I, I mean, people do end up double-crossing their subjects sometimes, but I don't know how long their careers go. Anyway, so so you sort of have a, a commitment to your subject uh, it, uh, that 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 is part of the whole sort of bargain you make with people. Anyway, so um, so yeah, I spent a long time talking to him, and then the piece came out. But the, yeah, the movie, the well, the rights were bought fairly soon after the piece came out. Oh wow. But uh, the writer struggled, and they, it was a screenwriter who, who created a screenplay. Uh, but he had he um, had uh, a lot of other issues. He was, I think, he suffered from clinical depression. He ended up committing suicide. Oh wow! Uh, before the thing came out, and uh, so there was a lot of stuff that went on, and. Uh, I never, I, I sort of, you know, consulted on the script uh, and and gave ideas. The director became kind of a friend of mine, uh, uh, but you know, I wasn't, I didn't actually write the the script. So, you know, I, I had kind of a arm's length relationship with the film. Yeah, I mean, I thought the film, you know, I thought I liked the film. The, the cinematography was great. Uh, uh, the way it showed Detroit in the 60s was yeah. really cool. Um, and, you know, it had some good actors in it, too. Uh, it had Alan Alda. Yeah. Uh, uh, Greg Kinnear played the uh, the inventor. Uh, it had uh, uh, Dermot Mel Rooney uh, when, he was, when he was young. Um, anyway, it, it had uh, the woman from Gilmore Girls. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was... Uh, it was a good movie. It was they they had to kind of it didn't really have a conventional Hollywood ending is the thing. Like it, it sort of uh, had kind of a, a bittersweet ending, and they needed to sort of pump it up a little bit. So you know, in that sense, it was a little bit of a Hollywood version. Yeah, yeah. But um, but it was a good film. Uh, it, it you know it wasn't like a huge success in the box office, but um, it's definitely a good rental. You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had said something before, um, you know, you, you had to spend a couple of days with him to get him to trust you and things like that. Right. Um, Richard Ford, I don't know if you know that author, he wrote a book a long time ago called the sports writer. And yeah. there's a scene in that book where he talks, he talks about that. He's like, I, he had to, you know, he has to go to the person's house and you're spending hours with these people before you even probably record anything. Right. Um, just getting them yeah. Yeah, to want to open up to you. Have you ever had an instance where you went to someone and they just kind of shut down and the project didn't happen. I probably, I probably haven't a lot, but I probably like kind of put it out of my mind. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 Interestingly, Richard Ford was my teacher in college. Uh, you're, the, you're the third person on this podcast to have been taught by Richard Ford. I mean, it was really Richard Ford, if anybody that sort of encouraged me to actually be a writer. Uh, he was a very good teacher. Uh, he was very inspirational teacher to young people and maybe he still is uh, uh did, was he wearing jeans and cowboy boots that's why i heard he wore all the time yeah he was <laughs> yeah he was young then he yeah. was in his early 30s probably yeah. so he had just okay. published his first novel he hadn't written the sports writer yet okay um the, the sports writer kind of put him on the map yeah, no, most definitely. and it's a great it's a great book yeah um but yeah i mean i, I mean i'm sure that i've had uh I, i'm sort of blanking on specifics but yeah um it's part of the job i'd imagine yeah yeah i mean you you try to use as much as you can uh the, the thing about another thing about nonfiction, which which i kind of 
feel is good for uh, using a lot of stuff is that the 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 form is is like kind of loose enough so that it allows you to fit in um, you know your own thoughts, quotes from people, uh, third person narrative uh, or newspaper uh, articles that you might have come across. A little bit of art criticism if it's sort of like about somebody who paints. Uh, dialogue. Uh, you, you also know, have to keep it interesting. I mean, you got, you know, with nonfiction, there has to, not necessarily a plot or a storyline, but there has to be elements of, you know, surprise and things like that. And you always kind of want to keep the reader on the edge of their seat in some way. Well, but, and also I think like as a, in fiction writing, um, you know, I, well, if you, if you liken this to painting, um, like a fiction writer is a little bit like uh like an artist with a brush in which everything that the artist does with that brush can create anything they want just, just, you know, out of their own imagination. Whereas a nonfiction writer, and I said this to you earlier in terms of Robert Rauschenberg, a nonfiction writer is working with kind of found materials that you can do a certain amount of painting over them. Uh, but ultimately, you know, you're working with stuff that you found in the course of your reporting and are trying to kind of fit into this kind of collage or combine-like structure, which is quite, I think, different from a fiction writer who's able to change little things to sort of make them all blend together and, and be part of a, a seamless whole. There's always going to be you know, kind of little edges and chunks and stuff that sort of is integral to those pieces that you gathered as a writer, a nonfiction writer. And, you know, you kind of need to allow that stuff to breathe and exist in your pieces and find a structure that that makes it make sense. So anyway, so, you know, I, I do find that a lot, of, when you're reporting, you don't really know uh, what you're going to use, right? You won't really know what you're going to use until you sit down, you're finished with your reporting, you've got your like basket full of, you know, reported groceries that you've brought back from your reporting trip. You get them out, you know, it's really kind of like cooking, except you don't have a really have a recipe or even know exactly what you're cooking yet. <laughs> and, and so you, you sort of start working with them and then you discover, oh yeah, that was the thing that was important, but I didn't realize that was the thing that I, I asked about this and he said that, but it was, it was actually that that became more important than this. And you didn't even realize that at the time, you know, you have, or sometimes you have a completely different idea of what you think the story is and then it has to change. And, and I think where you get in trouble maybe is when you try to sort of hang on to that like dogmatic idea of what you thought the story was yeah. And then, you know, you don't really get to see where what the real story is. And sometimes that takes multiple drafts and having someone read it in between, you know, to sort of enlighten you. So I have this image of you. It's the 90s. It's New York City. You know, for people who weren't in New York City in the night, I was a little younger, but I was there. I mean, you know, it was a city that was just on the up. I mean, things were happening in New York. I mean, it was a it was a place. Um you're living in my mind, probably some people's dream life, right? You're a staff writer at the New Yorker. You're kicking around Manhattan, doing whatever you want. What's a typical day in the life for you at that time? I mean, you know, again, are you reading the paper every day, looking for something to write about? Are you always working on something? What's going on at that point? You have a family, you have kids, anything like that? 
I got, I, I didn't have kids yet in the nineties. I got, I got, my son was born in 98. So he okay. in the nineties and now I now have a, a daughter as well. I got married, uh, early in the nineties. I went, met my wife in a magazine. Actually, oh, wow. my friends, I met a magazines. Magazines were like a whole sort of social group unto themselves. Imagine. Um, but yeah, like the great thing about the New Yorker was in those days, is, uh, they had these sort of famous offices with these warrens of little tiny offices. And there were these writers that hadn't published in, you know, 30 years that were sort of there every day. And it was this great era of mystery. Uh, and so when I got like one of those offices, truly that was such a, a gift. And uh, it was like heaven to be in there. And, and, and so I would go. To the, I mean, even though I, you know, could work at home, uh, I would go to the, you know, go into, it was uh, right across from Bryant Park and, you yeah. know, right middle, midtown Manhattan and, uh, and hang out there. And, you know, I, yeah, I trying to always have something going, but, you know, part of it for me as a young writer was just hoping to be able to talk to Joseph Mitchell or Brandon Gill or, you know, these guys that, like, I had grown up reading The New Yorker. My parents got The New Yorker. A lot of people sort of maybe their parents get The New Yorker. Yeah. So I had sort of known who these people were, George Tro, um, you know, and, and here they were. So, you know, I just kind of wanted to, like, get as much as I could from that environment while it lasted. And it didn't really last, you know, it, it eventually... Um, the, the magazine moved to Times Square, which yeah. was a more corporate situation, and now down to One World Trade, which is where it is now, uh, which is a hot, extremely sort of corporate type environment. So it wasn't; it's not really quite the same. Yeah, but but yeah, you know, sort of hanging around. Uh, if, you, if you go to the office, uh, it's you know, proximity can help you in terms of like ideas. Your know, ideas are like the coin of the realm, right? A good idea is 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 the one the most desirable thing you can possibly have. And it's the hardest thing to come by. Uh, so how do you get your ideas? Yeah, well, like reading newspapers is is the most sort of maybe basic way to get them, but also you know just like talking to people, like hearing, trying to get out of your comfort zone or out of your your sort of like little niche and and hearing about what's going on i mean i had i didn't have like one specific beat so like it wasn't like i was covering like city hall sure. or you know I, I had interest in as i said sort of technology i was interested in sort of business i was interested in, in in music but at that point i didn't write about music because other people were doing that kind of stuff so, so I sort of, you know, sort of tried to find things that were kind of roughly in my area. And a good thing about as a young writer, I think, if if you can sort of define your your brand in a certain sort of realm of of journalism topics, then people will think of you if they have an idea in sure. that in that realm. They'll approach like, oh, you. Yeah, he writes that. Right, right. So it's good to have not just like a byline, but also like a like a, a subject that you're associated with but so I, you know i never really had like a specific one but sort of tried to sort of develop i eventually kind of got more into um and i wrote a book in the late um 
90s called No Brow. Uh, it was my second book. My first book was was called Deeper. It was about the internet. The, the first pieces I did for The New Yorker after that gold mining piece were um, like I did a profile of Bill Gates in which I got email. This was in 93. Literally no one at The New Yorker had ever even like used email or even heard of it. <laughs> yeah, sure. It was like a completely bizarre yeah. new thing that I interviewed him on email and that became you know kind of like the the the, the piece and and that was a sensation you know it was just like oh my god you can interview you can interview somebody yeah. on email this You're is looking at us in 2020 now yeah uh, <laughs> right, right it was like oh my. so so i did then a series of other pieces about like this thing that was sort of emerging then that for 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 the mainstream consumer the internet uh and that became my first book and then after that, I, I felt like technology had sort of, I, I, I mean, the hard thing about writing about technology is it's not visual. It's hard to, it's, you know, a lot of it is very abstract. It takes place on a screen. So it's sort of hard to create narratives that, that are really juicy and, and can bring the reader in. So yeah. I kind of moved in more into a sort of uh, uh, mainstream, like uh, Hollywood blockbuster the, the 90s were a time when there was this kind of like, um, I don't know, blockbusterization of our mm-hmm. culture. You had these massive stores. You had like big Everything about the 90s, movies, yeah. Paul movies, you know, like Star Wars returned. Uh, I, I did a long piece about that. Um, you know, so so I, I ended up doing more kind of popular culture stuff, I guess, and not so much technology. And that became my second book. Um, and then from that, I sort of got into music specifically and and um, pop music and how it was created. Sure. Um, well, let me again. Let me let me stop you there. Book. I'm going to stop you right there. Right. So yeah. you, you're writing these books and you're writing pieces for the New Yorker. You're doing these kinds of things. You're looking, you know, for inspiration wherever you find it. Um, we talked earlier. You were playing guitar. I mean, have you always been a fan of music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always been, uh, well, a huge listener, a huge music meant a lot to me as a kid. Uh, I was, I was kind of a lonely kid, I guess. I got a lot out of listening to songs, listening to the lyrics, like connecting with what the singers were saying. And I always remembered all the lyrics. And, and, you know, I, I play music. I mean, I'm not like, I wouldn't say that I ever really seriously considered a professional career as a musician, but. Well, you're you're talking to some. You're talking to someone who did and who tried, and you wrote a yeah. book about a very, 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 very specific thing, something that I tried to do myself, um, pop songwriting. Um, right. When did that first idea kind of come into your head? When did, you know, was it during the time of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC where you started thinking about how no. is this fucking, yeah, because I mean, again, it's such, I mean, you talk about Max Martin, you get very detailed about things that most people have no fucking clue about. When did right. you, when did that, you know, see germinate in your head? Well, I knew like when the Backstreet, I, I remember very clearly like when the Backstreet Boys album Millennium went number one at the very end of uh, like the the millennium. So does my sister. And I remember hearing about this guy, Luke, this weird impresario guy named Lou Perlman, who was backing them. And I thought that sounds like kind of an interesting story. And I think I even sort of proposed it at the time. 
but uh, I didn't get any. Uh, I, I I didn't get an assignment to do it, and it wasn't for another. I guess ten years uh, went by, and and Lou Pearlman uh, ended up being a huge like Ponzi scheme swindler <laughs> yeah. among and, many things. And went to jail. That oh now 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 he's interesting. Now yeah, let, let's let's look into Lou Pearlman. Although that wasn't actually how the book started, the, the, I got the book. That project, that whole book, and started as a, a New Yorker article, and it was assigned to me. Uh, somebody said there are these. We have these uh, weekly ideas meetings. Um, there, uh, editors are supposed to go to them every week. Writers are only invited once in a while, and you're supposed to bring three ideas. Everyone's supposed to bring three ideas, and you actually have to present them uh like out loud to everybody so it's you know it's kind of stressful we have a lot of smart people that are kind of listening to your supposedly good ideas and it was it was somebody else's idea <laughs> said like there was this uh production pair called stargate it's these two norwegian guys uh who have a studio in new york uh maybe uh you know and they've had some hits lately how about a piece about them and and so I said, yeah, that sounds kind of interesting. And I actually didn't really understand at that point how modern pop music is made. You know, I sort of still kind of had this idea that you had like a Burt Backrack, Hal David situation where there was one guy at the piano and another guy with the words. And Smoking all cigarettes, the- drinking coffee in, in the, the yeah, Darkwood yeah, room. Yeah. And that was totally wrong. Absolutely, completely wrong. And I realized that within an hour of sitting in the studio with these guys, and I so, just I'm was, sorry. So, so you did. So you eventually. So this idea. You took this idea. And so, I, so, I, I, so I said, "Yeah, I, I'll look into this." Yeah. And so then I, I got, I got the guys, you know, contact information. That was and, the producing couple. The duo, yeah, Stargate. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. two guys, and they have a manager. So yeah. I sort of talked to the manager and. And he said, yeah, yeah, they were interested in having a piece about them in The New Yorker. Uh, and so I went to their studio and, and but th- so, the, yeah, the very first day I was there, it was, it was just, uh, I had no idea that pop music was made by, you know, it was like absolutely the opposite of the way I thought music was made, where like, instead of beginning with melody and lyrics, you began with like production which you would think is like comes at the end, but but in fact, in this method, it came at the beginning and people, all these guys, these Norwegian guys made all these tracks uh, and they didn't have melody. They just had, you know, kind of chord changes and then atmospherics. And and then they would have this other person come in. It was called a top line writer that would listen to all the tracks and then come up with a hook. And and that person, whose name in this case was Esther Dean, became like a major character in, in the book because she was just a fantastic character. And what she did, uh, the way she did it was basically just go into the booth. Uh, they would start putting on one track after another. And in, in like a 20 seconds or so, if she didn't like it, they just go to another one because they had an endless number of these things. And, and eventually they would come up with one that, would kind of resonate with her. And then she would just sort of like sit there and, and start throwing out these kind of vocalized sounds. Like syllables and things like that. Syllables. Yeah. She had like these little catchphrases in her phone that yeah. she would look at. 
uh, that she had just kind of written down, uh, like now or never, or, you know, these sort of hooky sounding kind of little, and, and eventually and you're sitting in the studio watching this. All I'm, I'm on the other side of the window with yeah. these guys and listening to her. And I'm kind of watching them get excited as she sort of approaches the, the hook that she's looking for. And then eventually she hits on this thing that they think is, it's the right, you know, hook and everybody goes crazy because it's, it's kind of like a gold, uh, a little bit like going back to the idea of like a gold rush. Uh, like when you, when you, when you have a, a really good pop song, it's, it's money. I mean, oh, yeah. it, you know, it's Literally. a lot of money. Uh, and so there's a, that element always there. And, and this uh, is like 2010 ish. Yeah, it was 2010 around mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 2011, 2010. And, um, so I ended up like just, just spending as much time as I could with these guys uh, I think they kind of wanted the story to be more about them. And in the end, it was as much about Esther Dean as them, although they they were in it too. And they were a little less thrilled about that maybe, but that's something as a writer, you just have to kind of roll with, like yeah. you have to tell the best story you can. And if it's not exactly the story that the people you're writing about think it's going to be, you know, that's just because you got to tell the best story you can. And at what point did you, were you thinking about maybe this could become a book? When did that idea come about? Okay. So, so yeah. So then I wrote, so, but so another great thing about like writing for the New Yorker is that you get to sort of like a lot of feedback and, and figure out like our ideas interesting or not uh, before you commit to a whole book, which is going to take you maybe a couple of years. I mean, you know, an article article will take you two or three months. Yeah. So, so the cool thing was that the article came out. I didn't really know if other people were as kind of amazed by this way of making music as I was. Uh, but it turned out they were, you know, a lot of people were just sort of flat floor. A lot of people were appalled like the older people in particular, the fact that they didn't use instruments, you know, no instruments. I was going to say was when you walked into that studio, was there even a guitar or a drum in sight? Exactly. Well, there was no drum. Absolutely yeah, not. Of course not. So, being a studio drummer is be like the worst thing. I have a friend. I'm one of my best friends does it for a living, but we'll, we'll talk about that. That's um, tough. Yeah, yeah but so and for people who more. don't for people who don't know this kind of recording has I, I you probably say it in the book I forget but it's called making music in the box. Yeah. Um and what that means is creating music all inside of a computer where you literally don't touch an actual instrument. Right. Were they working on pro tools? Were they working on yeah, logic? Pro tools. Okay, pro yeah. Tools. Yeah. So um, they had okay. A huge rig and um you know, a synthesizer uh that well one of the guys was a very good musician although of course yeah he rarely played he did occasionally play on a song the other guy was more of like uh an ears guy an a and r guy who, who could sit back and listen to what was happening and be able to say this is good yeah. and you know, this is not uh but yeah uh so you know, the older people, I think, were appalled that uh, the music is is all sort of technologically made. But a lot of younger people uh, and also sort of, you know, more diverse background, I think, were really excited by the sort of democratizing aspect of this. Like, you didn't necessarily have to have a music education, and that could have maybe you weren't wealthy enough to afford that or... You know, all you really needed was beats and and like some, you know, a little maybe a laptop, 
and and that was very exciting to a lot of, and continues to uh excite people who just read the book yeah uh and see that like music is not just like limited to people who have had this level of expertise that they don't think they have like if you have a song in your head then you can get it out there yeah you know and nowadays and, that, and since since then it's sort of almost gone to phones and and voice notes where people just sing into their phones when they have musical ideas and and then if they you know develop them from there so yeah. um so when you get the green light to write this book had you ever heard of the name max martin before did you even know who that guy was well, I mean, I did know who Max Martin was just because I'm a guy that looks at Billboard uh, charts. You know, I've always been sort of a guy that read the or interested to know what the number one song was and often would look and see who wrote it. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, you can't back in the 1910, 1912 period, Max Martin was on like every other song that you looked. Yeah, he was doing all those Katy Perry songs, uh, you know. Uh, I mean, literally uh, every single, and he was working with everyone. Pink, uh, 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 well, a little bit of Kesha, but that became more Dr. Luke. Uh, uh, but um, yeah, he was just, he was, he was, so yeah, I did know who Max Martin was. But I didn't really realize that he was going to become kind of this great white whale that I ended up sort of like kind of pursuing in the course yeah. of of the book. Uh, but but that actually w worked out well. It kind of gave uh, uh, in the end, you know, the book kind of became uh, the story of this little group of Swedes that started out in Stockholm in the early late eighties, early nineties, and then became these mainstream hit makers. And and the other stuff uh, got sort of built in into that, and and so even though I never actually sort of officially interviewed Max for the we we ended up meeting a few times and sort of talking about maybe so you did meet him, it, but ended up not doing it. Uh, yeah, I met him a couple times. I sort of forced. I went to. He's he's always getting awards. Uh, so the like only, if you only videos you can. App, like yeah. awards dinner, you're yeah. gonna. Move. I was gonna say the only videos you can yeah. find. So him I actually just went up yeah. to him yeah. and 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 met him. Uh, yeah, and then at a grant, I went to the Grammys one year too, and I sort of you know went up to him there, and then ended up sort of he. I think what happened was he sort of delegated some of his people to sort of basically represent him, and there's this one guy in particular named Savin Koteka who's now like a major pop songwriter uh american guy indian american yeah. guy uh who who kind of spoke he and he had he had sort of apprenticed with max so kind of spoke for him i think part of it is max is shy max's english maybe isn't as good as some of the others he's a little bit insecure about that and also you know he doesn't he's he's amazingly in a world in which everyone is out for attention honestly and sincerely doesn't want it at all uh you know because that's not his role you know he's the he's the ghostwriter behind the scenes and 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 what i became so interested in is that he actually has these vocal talents and musical talents and probably could have been the artist who sang his own <laughs> songs and yet gave them away yeah. uh to other people which just seems like such a fascinating thing so I think yeah. some days he probably is happier to be Max Martin than Taylor Swift. I don't know. That could just be me. 
Well, yeah, he doesn't get the he doesn't get like Kanye coming up and like dissing him on stage, you know. None of that crap. So when right. that book came out, you know, I made a little bit of a splash. Obviously, I was aware of it. Um, what's going on now in your life? Are you working on anything now? What's you know, are any new books? What happens in twenty twenty? Soon to be twenty twenty one. Yeah, well, I have. I mean, the the pandemic came along. It's sort of hard not to write about it. Like you know, so I've done a couple pieces. I just did another one about like the office and like what the office might look like when people go back and how the pandemic might change it. Uh, I have been working on a a kind of a, a a book about my family in South Jersey. Uh, they were in the farming business. Uh, it was kind of a whole family saga that went on down there. I go, I work on it from time to time. I mean, I, I, I have this weird sort of mind in that I'm interested in the stuff that's like the latest futuristic stuff. And then I'm also interested in like stuff that happened like 50 years ago. Farming in South Jersey. Yeah. And so I kind of like go back and forth. So actually the, the piece I'm working on now is, um, is I just started working on it as uh, e- they're about to launch a e- finally New York is going to get um, e-scooter uh, rideshare e-scooters in uh, the four boroughs, not Manhattan, but the other one starting in March. And, and so, and, and there has been this huge explosion of kind of electric vehicles in the last few years in, in city bike lanes, not just Especially, bikes, yeah, San Francisco for sure. Right. But like mono wheels and hoverboards and all this kind of stuff. So I, I just kind of want to, um, uh, it's changed in the city. It's really changed the way the city looks. It's changed the way how people get around. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, and also with the pandemic uh, and, the, and the lack of cars in the streets and a lot of streets being closed off, it feels like it's a real chance to kind of like reset uh, transportation in New York City and maybe move away from cars uh, you know, for the, in a significant way. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about, I'm sort of a, you know, it kind of hits a lot of my kind of nerdy kind of, it's like technology, you know, uh, transportation nerd stuff like last mile and how you get people from, you know, their car, their subway to their office and, Anyway, so yeah, I'm working on that. Now. Yeah, and and most importantly, I mean, just speaking with you for this time, it seems like you're a guy who's gets excited about what you do for a living and, and the stuff you write about. So I mean, that's just awesome to hear. Anyways, um, yeah, yeah, I think you kind of need it. Have you, to. you need yeah. you need energy to be a writer. Ultimately, it comes down to energy, like being able to like sustain mental energy and get it on the page, and it it got to work up to it, and then maybe you can only hold it for a couple of hours. And then you come back to it the next day, but that's like energy. It's it all comes down to energy. John, your energy is awesome, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I asked two questions at the end. Yeah. I asked two questions at the end. First, um, are you a social media? You do Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. yeah. uh, What's your handle? Can people get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I think I'm just cool. J.M. Seabrook. So. Cool, all right. Yeah, we'll give the link. It. And um, any bookstores you like in New York, people should be buying your books from? What, what do you? Who do you uh, like? I like um, uh, Greenlight here in, in, in Brooklyn, right near me. It's a wonderful bookstore. So uh, even if you don't buy my books, go visit Greenlight on Fulton Street. There's also one out in the Lefferts Gardens. Cool. John, thanks so much, man. All right, man. Have a great day. Talk later. Yeah, happy new year, Michael. You too, bye-bye. Bye-bye.